Welcome aboard! We will be your guides during this magical journey into the movies. It's the perfect job for us because we love the movies. It's showtime! Ready when you are, CB! Action! Welcome to Monoreal Radio, episode number 146. I'm Sean. And I'm Jack. And we are here to celebrate the 80th anniversary of The Reluctant Dragon. Now, this is a movie that we have been talking about for a long time because in spite of the fact that this is the first time we sat to watch the movie, we have had this in our window of films to watch for quite some time because, and I almost can't believe this, three years ago. Oh my God. We took our tour of the Disney Studios in Burbank and this was a big topic of conversation when we took the tour. I almost feel like Sean and I have a little bit of the Mandela effect happening with this movie though because what, at least what we remember they told us on the tour and what this film is are two completely different things. Like probably the thing that was most memorable is they showed us the signpost with Mickey, Mickey Mouse, Mickey drive, Mickey drive and dopey drive going the other way. Um, And in the film, in the reluctant dragon, it's different. Uh, But after they made this movie, they had to put it in because then people would go to the studio and expect to see this thing. And it's not actually there. So I like that there's sort of that little, theme park touch you know already they're doing these easter eggs before the the theme parks have even been conceptualized right because the public wanted to see something or somebody wanted to see something so walt did the little hat tip right so is this movie exactly what we thought the answer is no but we're going to explain why in just a moment. This review is sponsored by the Hidden Mickey Supply Co. Products include Disney and Pixar-inspired 3D straw charms. Listeners of Monoreal Radio can get a 10% discount with the code MONOREAL10 at checkout. Visit Instagram or Etsy, search for Hidden Mickey Supply Co., and shop for all of your straw charm needs. Robert Benchley and his wife set off to the Walt Disney Studios in the hopes of selling him on the idea of turning the reluctant dragon into a film. It is a book that Robert, at least, has an admiration for. Once Robert gets a pass to see Mr. Disney, he is escorted by a studio guide named Humphrey, but he continues to sneak away to see an art class, the music recording studio, a Foley sound recording session, the camera room where the multiplane camera is in use, the ink and paint department, the maquette department, the storyboard department, and the animation department. Finally, Humphrey finds Robert and brings him to Mr. Disney, who shows him the new film that they just finished. It's the Reluctant Dragon. Did I get all of that? (laughs) I mean, I have never gotten through the plot of a film so quickly on Monoreal Radio. And like you, this this would lead you to believe that this film has like a 40 minute running time in total. And for some reason, that's what I thought it was until we sat to watch it. It is an hour and 15 minutes long. So it is just a hair shorter than, say, Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. Well, it is longer. I would say the live action parts probably are about 40 minutes. It does drag, well, drag on is not necessarily fair, but there are two short films, short animated films inserted into this live action tour of the studios. So the plots of those short films are not at all relevant to the overall movie. They are just 
you know, to take you out of it and show you the animation. That's the whole reason you're watching, right? You want right. the peek behind the curtain. So, of course, they have to throw in some animation in some aspect. But for our purposes, the plots of these films are really not important. Um, let's maybe start off with what we thought this was going to be yeah, based on what they told us on the tour. You want to go first? Yeah, so the way that they explained it at the tour, we knew that Walt Disney was looking to sort of show off his new shiny toy, which was the animation studio. And they figured that they could turn that into a film, give the public what they want, while also turning a buck on it. Because at the end of the day, Walt Disney was a businessman. What I thought was happening here was that, like, the dragon was going to be animated over live action you know, over live action, over people walking around the studio lot, sort of like a Pete's Dragon sort of thing. And I thought that perhaps the dragon was showing us around the lot or he was being a menace on the lot or being a prankster on the on the lot. The way that they explained it, that was sort of how I walked away thinking the movie was going to be. So I'm interested to see if you had the same takeaway as I did or if I'm completely off the mark. Well, not to mention... Look at the Disney history. Of course you would think that. In almost every time they have done the live action with animation and blended the two, it's been, here's your animated host taking you around. It's what Walt does. It's what they're known for. It's what they've always done. It's why we go to the parks and spend our money every year. Right. So I, I don't think that you were misled in any way. What I was led to believe was that the reluctant dragon was sort of a metaphor for Walt as he started to become known as a more serious film producer as opposed to just doing these quote-unquote cartoons because he wasn't taken seriously in Hollywood at first. Right. Even with the commercial success of Snow White and it being the highest-grossing animated film, people still didn't take him seriously. But that is why they did the reluctant dragon. Um, obviously, Snow White did well and basically Walt bankrolled all of the profits into building this bigger studio and this new facility. So that's part of the reason he wanted to show it off. Uh, after that, Pinocchio and Fantasia didn't do so hot because they came out during the war and people, you know, didn't have disposable income right. where they could go and go watch a movie. Correct. And in order to finish funding the next few films, which would be Bambi, Dumbo, and Peter Pan, they needed a quick turnover, which was this. And it makes perfect sense because you're only hiring one actor to do the tour. Well, a couple more because not everybody who quote unquote works at the studios in this film Right, actually really worked there. did that, yeah, or really uh, performed the job that they are showing us. Yeah. Um, so you saved a lot of money there. I would assume maybe these animations were done sort of like, uh, fun and fancy free. Yeah. Or, um, or like an Ichabod and Mr. Toad. Like they were the other vignettes that were going to be used somewhere for something. Exactly. Or they started out as a feature film, but they just didn't have the funding to complete it. Right. So if these shorts were already lying around, it was perfect to insert them in here. So it was a relatively quick and easy 
turnover to crank this one out. This did well critically because people liked the peek behind the curtain. It did not do well commercially because at the time the public wanted to see more of what Disney established himself as, which is the animated films producer. So right. they wanted the next Pinocchio, the next Snow White, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, so I thought that that was kind of ironic that this didn't do at all what they set out to. Well, in in typical Disney fashion, they, for a lack of a better term, Disney-fied the whole thing because the animator strike was happening at the same time. So you're you're sitting here showing these holly jolly people who are now on strike because they're saying you didn't pay them enough. So, yeah, I can see where there was a lot of conflict here, but I think the movie cost about 600000 to make, and it made almost a million dollars back. So it did turn a quick buck fast, and it did obviously get the next three films made. Um, but let's talk about what we actually have here. Um, it opens with Robert Benchley, who was a radio comedian, and that's what he was known for. And it ha- it's such a, like weird opening where his wife is reading this children's book to him and I think they say it's his nephew's book and he's in a swimming pool on a float shooting like suction cup darts at a duck toy in the pool what's really funny about that is that in real life his grandson Peter wrote Jaws what yes what? Yeah. I'm not rendered speechless often on this program. Smile, you son. Oh, my God. It makes so much sense now. I mean, nepotism, but it's just funny because, I mean, ironic funny. Yeah. Because it happened so many years later. It's not like this was a plant where, you know, he's in the water. And obviously, the reluctant dragon is nothing like Jaws. I'm, but just, I'm floored right now. Yeah, I mean... Uh, it is kind of a weird start. I don't buy that she wouldn't read to him, but why a children's book? Like, if this is your nephew's work, why do you want it read to you? Don't you want to, especially because it seems like a picture book, wouldn't you want to look at it? Yeah, but like you think that she's reading it to a child. And I mean, that's it. That's the comedy, right? Is that she's reading it to a grown man who's playing basically with a pop gun. The whole open feels very I Love Lucy to me. And this came years before. Oh, yeah she's pushing him to go pitch this to Disney, which I also thought was kind of interesting because I was like, is this Walt's tongue-in-cheek way of telling people not to send him unsolicited material? So, And I wondered the same thing because it's like, naturally, let's just get in the car and drive to Mr. Disney. Or is he still trying to seem approachable like anyone can do this? I feel like as he got older and became Uncle Walt... He was approachable. Not that he wasn't when he was younger, but I think that perhaps it's because we're predisposed to seeing him on the wonderful world of color and we knew him as Uncle Walt that would walk around Disneyland and shake hands and take pictures and kiss babies. Um, Yeah, I kind of couldn't figure out exactly whether this was, like you said, tongue-in-cheek or whether he was attempting to soften himself, especially in light of what was happening at the time that the film came out. Right. I mean, here's the thing. He's a Hollywood producer. Right. He didn't get to be the Walt that we know and love without, you know, keeping his cards close to the vest, 
without having to make a few hard decisions. I mean, you're you're teetering con- constantly. I mean, this is out there. It's pretty public knowledge that he was constantly teetering between wealthy and bankrupt. Yeah. With, yeah. with his, not just personally, with his entire company. So he's got to do what he's got to do to get this done. Correct. So naturally, they drive to the Disney studios. They say, yeah, we're here to pitch Mr. Disney on this book. And they basically said, okay, go ahead, go right in. It was that easy. They did bother to ask if he had an appointment, which he doesn't. And they said, go ahead. Okay, go ahead. And then his wife just leaves him so that she can go shopping. Speaking from personal experience, having taken the tour, it is not that easy to just get in. No, it is not. So (laughs) for anyone who is listening, please don't drive up to the Disney studios and say that we sent them. What I was really happy about in watching this scene in particular is that I believe that's the entrance that we pulled up to when we drove to the lot. So to see that for the most part, that was left very much unchanged, at least in my mind's eye as I remember it from, you know, the one time that we were there. I, it, it almost made the place more special. I think they updated the signage a little bit, but I thought the same thing too because I recognized it. Funny story about that entrance. Yeah. We got there super early because you've heard the nightmares about LA traffic and I think our tour was at like 10 and we showed up at 8. You had to check in at 9. Right. But we were staying in Venice. We were not staying in LA. This was actually Okay, so it was our we had checked out of the Airbnb in Venice. We were driving to Burbank to do the tour of the Disney Studios and from there we were going to Anaheim to check into the Anaheim Hotel and go to Disneyland. It was a Disney saturated trip. But anyway, we got there an hour early. And the gates are locked. And Sean told me that he would pay for the rest of my vacation if I sang like Elsa, tell the guard to open up the gates. And I'm not one to turn down a good dare. But when I tell you I was shaking in my boots just to be in the presence of this building, I couldn't bring myself to do it. I was so afraid if I breathed the wrong way, we would be tossed out. And I was like, I'm just going to be on my best behavior today. And we killed time because we went to Prince Donuts, which was around the corner. You go to the stoplight, the first stoplight, I believe, make a right, and then the place is like a half a mile down the road on your left. Best apple fritter you ever have in your life. I'm pretty sure that Walt enjoyed them too. Let's get back to the movie. Let's talk about Humphrey. He's my hero because he's what I want to be. He looks like Buddy Holly dressed as a Boy Scout. Um, I'm not sure if this was the actual attire that the, that the guides wore at the studios. It almost looks too fake, but at the same time, I can totally see Walt Disney dressing his staff like that. Especially because he's such a young guy and he's a wealth of knowledge for the studio, even though he is reading it out of his little notebook, all of these factoids. Um, but I kind of feel like he's the desperate intern who wants to climb the ladder so badly he'll do anything. Well, let me ask you a question. Do you believe that per- that perhaps this individual Humphrey really did work at the studio lot, but he didn't know all of this information and he he was reading this off less as the tour guide that is giving you the factoids and more of I need to say this right now and we have to shoot this today. 
and I just found out I'm in this movie? That's a great question. Like I, I could see them being like, yeah, you, come here. Oh, I can totally see that. I don't know about that actor specifically, but I do know the actual staff was getting in the way of production because they had never, believe it or not, they had never seen a real movie before, quote unquote. <laughs> so they were like in shock and awe over the cameras and they would be in the windows looking out and ruining the shot. I believe it. Yeah, because up to that point, they they hadn't done live action. They were really just an animation studio. Well, yeah, really, this is one of the first six films, and five of those six are all animation, mm -hmm. except for the, the conductor sequences in Fantasia. That's it. Right. What I think they do a good job here is to create a buzz, a very smart way, really, to create a buzz around Dumbo. Because you go into this drawing class, this art class, because now Benchley has gone off on his own. Uh, one of the many times he continues to sneak away from Humphrey. And they have a very tongue-in-cheek moment where they're talking about the model and look at her skin and look at how radiant. And, of course, you think that they're drawing a female in the nude to find out that it's an elephant. And what I love is that you get so much concept art Yes. Like on the walls. And I believe that that concept art was probably just there naturally. Like, I don't think they had to stage a lot of this movie. Some things, yes. We'll get to that shortly. But I kind of feel like they just showed up with cameras and did a regular work day. They had a little bit of a script to follow. But by and large, they didn't have to dress the set. And I know that if I were a kid, let's say I was seven or eight years old and my parents took me to a movie house to go see this. And I'm seeing... A live elephant, a full-size elephant at the Disney Studios, and they're practicing how to draw it, I would be so excited for what the next movie was going to be. Yeah, it's a brilliant tool for self-promotion. I love the fake-out with the elephant instead of the curvy model. I think that's very funny. Um, I also love, like you said, the concept art, but more specifically, um, one of the artists is drawing the elephant very realistic and the animation supervisor sort of comes in and he's like no do it more cartoony like this so I love that we get to see how he just sort of goes over the existing lines and morphs it to look like an animation instead of a realistic elephant and you get to see the blend because we've seen it happen you know a little bit later on in films like Bambi where they're doing the animals. And we had talked about it when we reviewed Bambi, how far it came when you see Bambi himself versus the, the animal creatures that help Snow White clean the cottage. Right. And those were drawn more realistically, but Bambi obviously has so many more characteristics. So I love that they sort of simplify that concept and show you how it's done to give these animations more more cartoony features. I don't, I don't want to say cartoony because it's not supposed to be a cartoon, but you the, the whole idea is to make them look realistic in this case. And over those six films, they've gotten farther and farther away from the realism. Well, they've become more of those like cute, whimsical animals that you expect to see in a Disney movie. Like they the the later ones specifically, Look, you don't even need to know the movie. You can just see the animals and you look at them and you know, yeah, that's Disney, right? I think that there are certain characteristics 
and I think that's true of any animation studio, whether it's Disney, whether it was Hanna-Barbera, Pixar, DreamWorks, where you just, you look at how a character is built, how they're designed, how they move, what their mannerisms are, you know, aesthetically, everything from top to bottom, more times than not, without having to know the movie, you can pick out where they came from. Because every studio has their own style. You're absolutely right. And I mean, we've seen that trickle-down effect having generation after generation of Disney animators learn from the nine old men. But I guess that's a better way of articulating what I'm trying to say is that with just a few simple strokes on this elephant, he looks less real and like a Disney animation. And it just simplifies the whole idea. I feel like this would have landed so much harder, though, without having ever seen Dumbo. Like, back in the day, this was probably very revolutionary to see an elephant, a literal elephant in the room that they're sketching. Meanwhile, we know that this is how Disney learns how to draw their characters. Like, we've seen our generation was probably more wowed with the the behind-the-scenes footage of The Lion King where there's an actual lion in the room. Yeah, poor Jeffrey Katzenberg. (laughs) But... The elephant is, we're we're sort of desensitized to that because we've seen them do the lion. Um, Before we move on from the scene, I do want to circle back to something that you said about uh, the actors in this film versus the actual animators. Yeah. I happen to know for a fact, one of the female artists in this scene is neither an actress nor an animator. I've talked about this book on the show before. it's called the, Cre- the Lady from the Black Lagoon. And it's this hybrid biography slash memoir of a filmmaker, Mallory O'Meara. And she's a big horror fan. And she found out that the creature designer for the creature from the Black Lagoon was actually a woman. And Hollywood buried that story and gave credit to her male colleague because he wanted the spotlight. And he was causing such a big fuss over it uh, and such a big problem with Universal, they kind of had to give in to what he wanted and they just erased her from their history. Turns out Mallory O'Meara uncovers that it's Millicent Patrick. That's her stage name that she went by and she started out at the Disney Studios and she was, I believe, an in-betweener and then she was in ink and paint. But she was known for being such a gorgeous woman and she was known around the Disney lot that way and she had done a a little bit of work as a background uh, extra in other films Um, they pulled her into the scene just based on looks alone so she is there she hardly has any screen time at all but to answer your question yes there are several plants of people who were not actually performing their their right job and in this scene one of them checks out. I can at least confirm that much. Is she the one that draws uh, uh, Benchley on the elephant's body? I think that's her, right? That would have been cool. No, that woman's blonde. She was a brunette. She's okay. in like one shot in the background. Gotcha. Well, this is the first time that they they all kind of start dumping on Benchley. Every department, for the most part, that he goes to finds a way to pick fun at him. And... 
he's a very good sport about it. It's funny, though, because the face that she puts on the elephant, to me, looks more like Disney than it does Benchley. It, yeah. Well, they kind of similar looking, though. They are, but she pronounces the mustache too much. And he even calls that out. He's like, well, I shaved this this morning. It was He was a good sport about it. Okay, let's move on to the uh, the musical element here, the recording session with the orchestra, and they're doing a score. And, I mean, look, it's cool to see, but to me, what was better was seeing Florence Gill and Clarence Nash together. Um, Clarence Nash, of course, is the original voice of Donald Duck. So seeing the two of them work together in harmony, um, because uh, Florence Gill, she's clucking like a chicken. Um, The whole thing's very funny, and you don't see it coming. Even I laughed like a child when she started making those those noises and and admittedly I thought that they had like dubbed it over but that was really what she did at the Disney Studios this scene is what makes me want to recommend this movie like if you're not sure this is your thing and that you're going to be into a behind the scenes look and if it sounds like it drags and you're just not into documentary I mean not that this is a documentary. This is a complete fiction. The better movie is Waking Sleeping Beauty, hands yes. down, yes. if you want the behind-the-scenes look. But if you're not sure if this is going to be your bag, this whole scene is what makes it worth it because it is so funny and so shocking to see this woman start singing opera and then make it clucky. Yeah. I, I don't know how else to put it. Mm-hmm. Um it's just hilarious. And we did review Waking Sleeping Beauty back on episode number 13, and Randy Cartwright joined us on that episode as well. I'll be sure to link that in the show notes, but if you want to go find it, it's episode number 13. Um, what I love most is that even early on, because I immediately I started thinking about Waking Sleeping Beauty, and what we loved so much about it was you were kind of like giving a face to the faceless because you you knew these people by name and credit only. So actually seeing them work and the camaraderie was, I think, what draws you in. And, and it's such, a, it's such a, a, a story of victory in Waking Sleeping Beauty. So I love that even early on, we get the faces to the voices because now you don't really get a ton of unknowns voicing in films anymore. They usually find an A-lister. Right. And you know what Shakira looks like and you know what Amy Poehler looks like and you know what Jamie Foxx looks like. And and they're all talented. It's nothing wrong with that. But it's great to finally see these people. And I would imagine that they. it, It must have been something to behold as a kid. And I actually give Disney a lot of credit for sort of showing like that that man right there is Donald Duck. That's a really great point that you're making because you're right. We all know, you know, Kristen Bell got cast as Anna because she's Anna, Anna, because she's Kristen Bell. Right. Back in the day, you know, there's always that joke, right, about you've got a face for radio. There was a very clear line between voice actors and actors. It was very rare that people did both. So it's the same as the elephant. We're desensitized to it now, but... This was a big, it was a big move to put your cards on the table like that and actually show how you're doing this. The only character that you don't see being made is Mickey Mouse, though. And I think that they sort of did that because 
we we watch them animate Donald Duck. We see them animate Goofy. We watch them animate Pluto. You never see them animate Mickey Mouse. And I think that's because Mickey is the icon. And I think that they kind of wanted to keep up with the, no, he's he's here. He's with us sort of thing for the kiddos. That's a really great point. It could be a little bit of that. And it could also be that maybe Walt learned a lesson because this he he had his work stolen once before. Right. Oswald ended up in the wrong hands mm-hmm. and that's how Mickey got created. So maybe he was afraid to you know to lose the biggest cash cow. Could be. And you know what's funny about that too is part of this the reason that they made this film was not just to turn a quick buck. It was because the European audiences were demanding and and investors too they were demanding to see how Mickey Mouse got made. So this was a very tongue-in-cheek response in that regard. Yeah, and it's also great edutainment for kids. And I think that that really starts to pick up here in this next scene where we get the Foley recording session. I still am amazed with the means it takes to do Foley sound which for those who are not familiar, it's basically just sound effects. When you hear footsteps, if you hear a glass break, if you hear a door slam, people really do record those things and then they put them into the film. Um, I love this part. This this might actually be my favorite part of the movie. It's definitely up there for me. I've always been fascinated by Foley. In fact... There used to be a whole show dedicated to it at a certain park that used to show you how movies were made. It's not there anymore. And it was one of my favorite attractions because I thought it was so cool. That's actually, it's one of the first things that made me want to get into film was Foley. Because I just thought it was so amazing how they're taking, you know, one object and making it sound like something completely different on the screen that you just wouldn't expect. Now, what you saw, we're talking about Monster Soundstage. Yes. Did you see the one with Chevy Chase and Martin Short, or are you talking about the Drew Carey one? No, I'm talking about Martin Short. That was better than the Drew Carey. And I love Drew Carey, but that that was the better. Between the two versions of that attraction that at least I can remember, I thought that was the better one. But that's what I'm saying. As a kid seeing this for the first time and Mm -hmm. how it's done, it just completely blew you away. And it was one of those things that was a huge inspiration that, that made you put the two and two together of, wow, I can do this too. Right. And then I ended up not wanting to pursue it because everything went digital and I thought all of this stuff is pre-recorded. But they still do a fair amount of, of Foley d- design, especially in animation now because, yeah. you know, think of something like The Incredibles. Yeah. Yeah. Hardly any of that exists. Right. So anyway, to get back to The Reluctant Dragon, um, I do love this scene, but I do question how much of this was all real. I feel like this was a little bit of a theatrical show and a little bit of an exaggeration just to wow the audience. And by the audience, I don't mean the Dumbo audience who would eventually see this sequence because they're recording the Casey Jr. sequence right? and all of the train noises. I mean the reluctant dragon audience that Walt knows 
they want this amazing peek behind the curtain. I think this was his way of exaggerating a little bit to really wow people because I yeah. can't believe that when, um, well, it wasn't the entire Casey Jr. scene because Casey Jr. doesn't actually crash in right, Dumbo, right? But they end up crashing the train. Spoiler alert! And they have this big pile of barrels and wood, and they literally just knock it over and record it in an actual soundstage. I can't imagine that they would have a structure built like that at risk of toppling over at any moment while you're actually trying to do a recording. Perhaps not, but it made for a cool visual and it served its purpose of being edutainment. That's not the only thing that's staged here though, because now we're in fabulous Technicolor because the movie starts in black and white. Now we're in fabulous Technicolor as we go to the ink and paint department, which I actually thought was, I thought it was brilliant that we did this, but Knowing how the ink and paint was made, you know, it's like knowing how the sausage is made. Um, the way that they show it in the movie, you just know that that's not really how they did it. But visually, it looks cool. It was a smart move to switch from black and white. Although, I have to say, it's not nearly as impressive as when Dorothy steps into Munchkinland. Like, it's cool. It totally works for the scene. And you're not going to prove your point having all of these paint colors... In black and white. Right. I do feel like they actually did kind of a disservice to the ink and paint department here because they they made it look like such an automated process that they're just feeding all of these mixtures into tubes and spitting out a ton of color. But the paints were all mixed by hand. I mean, we learned this on the tour. And there are... I, I don't even remember how many colors i i think at least a thousand maybe several because they're all named after the characters you know it's not like red deep red brick red yeah maroon it it's all bambi bambi's tail donald's shirt right dumbo gray so it's very very specific and you had to match it each time now Here's where we can get into the animator strike a little bit. Part, you know, we all want to believe that Disney's a magical place to work. The reason these animators went on strike is because obviously it's it's very long hours under tight deadlines. But even the women, they were only ever really in the ink and paint department. It, right. it took a while to get them to be actual animators. So they were cleaning up all of the rough lines they were outlining them on the cell and then painting them. So you had to, part of the reason it was women doing this job was because you had to have a very steady hand. Walt did not allow them to drink coffee so that their hands wouldn't shake. Now, if there was a time machine, I would gladly get in because I would do just about anything to work for this man and to work on a Disney film. But I don't know that I would work for him knowing that I couldn't drink coffee considering he drank like a pot of it a day. I know. Yeah. I didn't know that. I didn't realize that. Those are some harsh conditions. They were allowed tea, but he just didn't want the caffeine jolt that was going to... And I I get it. You do have to have a steady hand. I really do. But I don't understand how you can do a 12-hour day without a cup of coffee. Some people can. Some people don't drink it at all. Hats off. It was pretty amazing seeing them weigh 
these paints because they basically they start as a powder before they mix them. And I thought that it was really cool seeing, I mean, the exact measurements so that it is exactly right. And they are not, they're not off by, by even a hair of a shade. That was really cool because that's not something, I mean, they take you through the building on the tour, but you don't get to see that, unfortunately. But like the mad scientist looking means that they go mixing it and spinning it and whatever. I I don't think that's exactly how they did it, but it looks cool in Technicolor and it looks great on film. Absolutely. Um, I loved seeing the multiplane camera. We have talked about the multiplane camera so many times on this show, but I love seeing it in action. And I love that they showed you really the scope of how large this camera was and what a technical marvel it was. Yeah, it's pretty amazing. I mean, conceptually, it's amazing. Uh, and you do get to see that on the tour as well. They do have the multiplane camera that was used for Snow White, I believe, in mm-hmm. the Disney Archives building. But it's just, it, it's like being in a museum. It's not functioning. So to actually see it function and see what it can do and how it actually moves the background so you can get that depth and being able to see Bambi slides on top of it. Yeah. That's that's a rare look. That's very cool. And I love that you see Donald explain animation here. Explains <laughs> As it only to Donald can. It was great. We move on to the maquette room. And I mean, my only note here is that I just think it's so cool that they paid people to make these maquettes for the animators um, and for the artists. Because, I mean, we know that these movies, these animated movies cost so much money to make. But... I mean, Disney spared no expense, that he's actually bringing in these animals for them to hand draw and examine, but that these maquettes, they get used only so that the animators and the artists understand, like, the scope and the body type when they're drawing these characters out so that everything is symmetrical and uniform. Like, I would not think to do that if I was, you know, looking to develop a character but it, it, it speaks to the spare no expense that was Walt Disney. And this is why Bank of America loved him and they loved the interest rates. And the level of detail is also what sets it apart. Because right. sure, you can have your two-dimensional character walking down the street. But what happens if he has to turn around and look the other way? You You need that full rotation so you know how to draw the other side of the character. Put it in profile. Yeah. Um, and I think... That's something that we take for granted now because, again, you see the behind-the-scenes footage, you see the maquettes, and they're the characters that we know in 3D form. But most of the time you're seeing those type of behind-the-scenes, their promotional videos after the film is already out and after you've fallen in love with the character and you know what it can do. Whereas here, this was a very early blueprint of what they needed to do with the character. This is also another scene where they take a dig at Benchley and she, uh, the, the sculptor does a bust of Benchley and uh, she puts a huge nose on him and then she gives it to him and he goes, I'll use it for darts practice. Yes, by all means take this woman's art and throw (laughs) darts at it. It's, it's funny. It's funny. You know what's not funny? Baby Weems. (laughs) We move on to the storyboard department and they're explaining what a storyboard department does and how it plays a role into the 
completed project that is an animated film. And I think that the storyboards look great, and I love that they decided to not show you an animation, but show you a story through storyboards, give you a completed film in storyboards, because that's really what this is in this vignette. But it's this very sad, very strange story where you have this baby that basically out of the womb is starting to talk and then is like on death's door out of nowhere and the parents are not allowed into the hospital room and they're listening for updates on the radio. It's just, like, it's it's bizarre. Yeah, it's really awkward. It's kind of no wonder that this short got buried within this larger film because I can't imagine a world where this would have stood on its own. I mean, maybe... Maybe they would have rolled it in before a feature length. Maybe. But it's just, it's a total downer. Um, What I do like about this scene, though, I think it's very important that they showed the storyboards because, again, it's something we take for granted now. If you've seen Waking Sleeping Beauty, you've seen all those great Disney storyboard pitches where they're acting it out scene by scene and pointing at the cards as they go along. But what this film has done so far is show they've done a great job of showing technically how these animated films are made. You know, they've shown us sound, they've shown us picture, they have shown us the animation. So I think that you have a good basis for how it's done, but the most important thing is having a compelling story. Otherwise, why are you making the film? Right. What's not compelling to me is why Benchley is not rushing to get to Walt Disney. You you get yes. this pass to get to Walt Disney and I understand again, I understand they need to make the movie and the movie is we're going to show you all of the departments. But I don't understand why Humphrey isn't just escorting him. I mean, I guess it's funnier if he's sneaking away from Humphrey and if he's being in places he's not supposed to be is a little bit of chaos and it's fun. But he is in no rush at all to get to Walt Disney. Who in their right mind would not be in a rush to get to Walt Disney? Right. And why wouldn't you want to get the tour from the man himself? It's funny you bring that up because that was initially their pitch for this movie. They knew they wanted to use Benchley as the personality, but they were pretty much going to have him be the tour guide. And Walt was reading over this pitch And he was like, this just seems like a travelogue and it's boring. We need to push the story forward. So that's why they conceptualize this whole idea of Walt being pitched and and making Walt the final destination and the goal that he's trying to get to. But yes, as a fan, it's totally unbelievable. You'd want as much time with the man as possible. I also find it very unbelievable that... Benchley is able to burst into any soundstage and this underling is supposed to be the disciplinarian. Yeah, that I mean, that within itself, too, you'd figure that they'd have more security or somebody bigger than Buddy Holly Jr. But hey, listen, it's what they got. It's what we have in the film. Or to me, it would have been so much more compelling if he had maybe snuck on the lot and was trying to outrun security and Disney found him. But because Disney is so kind He just sort of hears him out, and he's the one who walks him through. It's like, eh, you're not supposed to be here, but you're a likable guy. I'll show you around. I could Mm -hmm. see Walt doing that. Right. So we sit with Mr. Disney to see the new film that they have created, and it is The Reluctant Dragon. I thought at first that the child actor in this short was the same 
child actor from Pinocchio. It was not, but it sounded just like him. I think this dragon reminds me of something from the Sword in the Stone, just sort of in his general disposition and his sense of humor. But if I'm being honest, um, I kind of felt like this was a miss. Like we've we've sat here now for an hour and change to get to the reluctant dragon, and I understand he is a reluctant dragon. The whole thing is he wants to be a poet instead of fight battles against humans. But there's just nothing here that is that endearing or interesting. I agree with you. I get the comedy that the dragon doesn't want to fight and they pick the complete opposite. They go for the irony that he is a poet he's a lover not a fighter i think it's especially funny where they stage these battles and they create a cloud of smoke that sir giles who's supposed to be jousting this dragon hides in the smoke and they're having tea or you know having a conversation or they're dancing um but i feel like this whole sequence would have landed so much harder if they ended up screening a film that we already knew, like one of the beloved classics. And because this was being used to fund what would eventually become classics, they were in production. Like they had the whole little Bambi animated sequence. Like why not use a scene from one of these films? Right, because I mean, basically up to this point, the whole thing's been a commercial for both Bambi and Dumbo. So why not give us a little taste, a little sneak peek? But then again, you lose the comedy of Benchley gets all the way there to find out that they've already made his movie. Right, and I guess you can't really open up Pandora's box in that way because it's supposed to be his nephew's book and everything else was a book adaptation, which clearly we'd have no reason to believe that Benchley had the rights to. Right, it's it's just kind of why. That's the question. Why, why the reluctant dragon? Because he liked it. That's basically the answer that we get. So I, I feel like the payoff there isn't really, it's not really worth it. Um, I think that the goofy short, because they do have a very quick little goofy short in here where he's riding a horse. It lasts maybe a minute or two, but I felt that was better. I thought the Donald little vignette was better. I mean, I I kind of think even Baby Weems was better. Maybe just in the way that they showed it. And Baby Weems is terrible. So, um, yeah, this this to me, I I feel like the the juice wasn't really worth the squeeze. That's a great way to put it. Why not Mickey though? All right, fine. You don't want to show how to draw him, but why not have your golden goose? Right. I feel like I would feel completely differently though if the Reluctant Dragon had a place later on if it did become a bigger film or like if the reluctant dragon was figment i think i would feel totally differently but because the character has been lost to time other than this movie it just falls so flat so i guess now as we get into our final review of the film i'm going to ask you the question first does the film hold up because as you just said this reluctant dragon is a character that's lost to time I'm asking you, do you think it holds up? 
Live action parts, yes, because it's interesting. And even with Waking Sleeping Beauty, so much had changed technologically. It's not the same as getting a peek at the Walt era films. So I think that holds up to see Disney on the screen, to have him immortalized in that way forever, especially at a screening. Yes, absolutely. But the actual character of the reluctant dragon? No, absolutely not. It's, it's a cute short at best. It doesn't really wow me. There's nothing that I really love about the characters. It's no wonder that it didn't have staying power. And I feel like it just makes the whole film crumble. Especially because what they really had a great opportunity to do if Benchley was trying to pitch what would become a classic, you lost out on all of that notoriety and all of that money. It could have been a much funnier ending had he realized what he missed out on. That, you know, he's he's learned all of the secrets and he has a great story and it could have been such a shoulda, woulda, coulda ending for him. And I think that would have been hysterical. Yeah, I would agree. I feel like the character of the reluctant dragon doesn't hold up but I think that the movie does. I think, especially if you are a Disney file and you haven't seen it, to see Walt Disney in his element, really in his prime, before he was sick, before he was an older gentleman. Um, and again, we love Uncle Walt, but there's something about him, about seeing him in his youth and in his prime that I think makes this endearing. I think seeing the lot, seeing the studio as it was, kind of in that time capsule I think is great um, and I think that there is something here that kids can learn I think there was something there for learn uh, something there for them to learn when they saw it in 1941 when RKO put the movie out and I also think that there's something for them to learn here I think that you can see the lineage of film I think that you can see how far we've come some for better some for worse um, but seeing how one thing led to the next you know, uh, the reluctant dragon leads to Olaf. You know what I'm saying? Like, there is a lineage there that I think really should not be lost to time. I think if you had a better vignette to end the film, it would not be lost to time, but it is what it is. Ultimately, I said it before, I kind of think this is a big commercial. It's a big commercial for Disney Productions. It's a it's a commercial for the studio because at the time they were doing tours, not regularly, but they did offer them, and then they didn't for quite some time. Uh, it's a commercial for Bambi. It's a commercial for Dumbo. But it doesn't change the fact that it was very interesting nonetheless. Come to think of it, I think that the reason we are being so critical of this film is because we got to do that tour in person. Don't get me wrong. The short, not great. I will stand by that. But maybe we are being a bit harsh because we got to experience it ourselves. Well, and it's the way that they hyped it up when we were on the tour. Like, they kept bringing up, oh, it's the reluctant dragon. They talked about it like it was Snow White. Right, and I thought I was almost going to have, like, a keepsake of right. exactly what we got to see. Right. Um, so with all of that being said, movie, not worth it. Tour, definitely worth it. And if it's something that you're interested in, we're going to link in our show notes to our full in-depth review of when we got to do the tour. Um, you know, we were only a couple of months into the show at that point. Early on. Very early on. So we will link back to it in our show notes. 
and we are more than happy to share our experience with you if you want to get in touch with us uh, through our social media. We're at Monoreal Radio on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. We'll give you all of the details on how we got to book the tour, um, which we can't recommend enough. And, you know, especially now that Disneyland is open again, if it's something that you're thinking about doing, now's the time to go. I'm more than happy to help you book your trip to the parks, and I'll tell you exactly what we did to allow enough time to get to both the tour and spend enough time in Disneyland and DCA. So yeah. you can get in touch with us, again, through social media, monorealradio at gmail.com, or you can email me directly at j.zolezzi at magicalvacationplanner.com. So, News of the Week is brought to you by Karma and Kismet Designs. If you're looking for art prints, stationery, greeting cards, home decor, apparel, just really that touch of Disney... Kelly has got everything that you need. Plus, listeners of the show get a 10% discount with the code MONOREAL10 at checkout. Uh, be sure to scope out all of the products she's got online at karmaandkismetdesigns.com. That's karma, the letter N, kismetdesigns.com. All right, let's talk a little Disney Plus first. This is a very interesting, borderline stupid news week. But we're going to start with the act, the really interesting story here, which is that following the success of Loki, Disney has determined that they are going to release their new television episodes for Disney Plus on Wednesdays as opposed to Fridays. I'll be honest with you, I don't know how much of that has to do with the day of the week so much as it has to do with Loki. I would agree because you're telling me that this is getting more viewers than Mandalorian, than WandaVision. I mean, I'm not throwing shade at Loki because it's incredible. It's everything that I wanted it to be. We've been enjoying it. But I feel like this has more to do with it's summer now and they have movies being released on Thursday and they don't want to compete with themselves. Um. Yeah, that could be it. I think the other thing is especially now that we are in the summertime, kids are off from school, that means that the parents, you know, and especially <clears throat> in the Northeast or in the Midwest, where you have harsher winters, where you really are sort of hunkered down inside during the colder months. Now, you go to a carnival, you go to an amusement park, you go out, you know, camping, you go to a baseball game on the weekends because the kids are out of school, but the parents are still working. You know, a lot of people still work your typical Monday to Friday. So perhaps in the winter when there's nothing to do, there's nothing better to do on a Friday night than to order a pizza and catch up on your Disney Plus. Right. But in the summertime, there's so much else going on that I think people's weekends are really monopolized by their other activities that have nothing to do with Disney. Well, that's how it always was, right? I think people forget because we've gotten so used to streaming now. Your television season typically ran from September to around April or May. Like, think back to when we were kids. We had TGIF on a Friday night, but right. that ended pretty much when school ended. I wasn't watching that over the summer. You have a couple of summer series now, but traditionally you never had new episodes coming out on a Friday night. So I think, I think that's it too. It's a lot having to do with the kids being out of school. For sure. Okay. Now we have to get into 
just, just some really stu- all right we have to get into some stories we're stupid, in stupid rare news. form this week yeah and i don't mean sean and i i mean collectively as a disney community pulling out all the stops this week yeah first up is the gem that decided to jump off a boat in living with the land and steal a cucumber I mean, part of me wants to say what's wrong with people, but the other part wants to give kudos. I'm not condoning that anybody do this, but I mean, I I guess I can appreciate the gumption. But to me, if you're going to do it, like go for a piece of pirate gold. Right? I mean, do something worthwhile. No, just get a cucumber. What are you going to do? Eat it? That's your big story? You're going to go home and brag to your friends, I ate the cucumber? I guess. I guess that's all. Yeah. It's all you can do, right? I suppose. I hope. If she even got it off the ride. I don't I don't know what happened. I mean, I'm I'm guessing that's a park eviction. Especially because that's the other thing. All right, no, I'm going back to leaning with the side of what's wrong with people. In a barely post-pandemic world, you're going and contaminating the food. I mean, people. People that, in general. That that's that's got to be a ban for life. I would imagine that's equivalent the equivalent of uh, drinking from the fountains. Yeah. Um, all right. So that's the first thing. The second thing is that one of the one of the pieces of bling, one of the pieces of eight, <laughs> fell off of the castle at Walt Disney World. One of the fiftieth anniversary decorations fell off the castle this week. I don't know how it happened. I mean, did, did it did it hit somebody? I mean, what what exactly happened, or did it just come crashing down? I feel like it just came crashing down because if it struck somebody, we would have heard about it by now. Right. I'm just I'm kind of bummed that it happened. I mean, not that it really affects anything, but I I was really against the pink castle. I didn't like it at first, but now seeing what they did with all the bling, I think the gold and all the adornments they put on, it looks really, really nice. So it's a shame that that happened. Okay, and here's the other thing. <laughs> I saw this come up today. I thought it was a joke. I, I'm, I'm fairly certain it's real because I've seen it on multiple Disney websites that are credible. Disneyland Paris reopened. Just reopened. Right. It's the first time in 17 months that all Disney parks have been open at the same time. We are accustomed to, especially at Epcot right now, construction walls. When they did New Fantasyland, construction walls. Construction walls for years. Well, Disneyland Paris is doing a renovation on their castle. Now. After it's been closed for so long, they didn't get the renovations done while the park was down. So, apparently, this is not totally uncommon. They don't want the construction walls in Paris, so they try to hide when they do construction. And they're doing the construction, the renovation on the castle right now. And... What they do to hide the scaffolding is they put, like, giant cardboard cutouts 
of the structure in front of the structure so as to not ruin somebody's first time seeing the castle. Are you kidding? Now, this is the first time that you have seen this. This is currently what the castle looks like in Paris. Oh, my God. (laughs) Wait, no. Now, listen, do you remember when you were a kid? Legos? No. Well, that's what this reminds me of. It reminds me of the Happy Meals. Do you remember when, (laughs) like, you had to collect the Happy Meal box to get, like, a full setting or a play set? Yes. That's what this looks like to me. I have to be honest with you. I'd rather see the fake hedges and the construction walls. Seriously, I can't believe that this is the what they think is a better alternative. They think that that's going to make people happy if this is their one and only trip, that that's what they're going to see. And what somebody pointed out on social media, and I'm sh- looking at it from a distance now, I, they tried to make it like a nice, bright day, but... If there's cloud coverage, it stands out like a sore thumb. But in this case, it's almost too clear, and it really stands out. It makes the the painting dry. I don't know whatever it is that you want to call that. The sky is so blue, that painting looks overcast. Yeah. It's going to stand out no matter what. Oh, my God. So, cardboard or construction walls? I will never complain about Epcot again. Okay. Well, we want to know what you guys have to say about this ridiculous week of news. What what for you puts it over the top? Is it the cucumber or the cardboard? Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Monoreal Radio or email us monorealradio at gmail.com. Thank you all so much for joining us this and every week on Monoreal Radio. Don't forget to like, subscribe, and rate us on your podcast platform of choice. Uh, as well as follow that social media. We mentioned it before. We're also on TikTok at Monoreal Radio. And for links to all of the social media and everywhere that you can find the show, it's online at, mar- at monorealradio.com. For Jackie, I'm Sean. Have a magical week, everyone. On behalf of Monoreal Radio, we'd like to thank you for joining us. We'll see you at the movies, the stuff dreams are made of. <laughs>